Hey everyone, welcome to the Frontline Community Church Podcast. My name is Jared, and I'm the group's resident here at Frontline in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Our mission is simple, to see zero people unchanged by Jesus. And so whether you've been following Jesus your whole life or your journey has just begun, we hope that this message will help you draw near to the person of Jesus, be challenged and encouraged by his word, and be moved to action. We hope these next few moments are a blessing to you and equip you to see who God really is and who you are in him. Good morning. It is good to be back with you. I think it's been a little while. I've been um, doing the circuit of other Zero Collective churches and other Wesleyan churches in the area, so it's, it's good to be back with you. Um, a number of you ask me this, ask me these questions whenever I, I'm around, so I figure I'll just talk to the Jason, and give you a little update on where we're headed. Um, many of you know my, my story. I've talked about it before, but my book that chronicles my, my journey of loss and redemption, The Bellowing of Cain, was released in January. If you know somebody who's blown up their life, is looking to put it back together, it's kind of a how-to manual. Or if you know someone who's in peril of it, it's a how-not-to manual. Uh, I have some experience with that. Uh, the thing you may not know is that my young adult fantasy series released its third volume in, uh, last month, uh, fourth volume going into editing in January. So if you've got a, a YA in your house who likes to read portal fantasy, uh, Percy Jackson meets Narnia sort of thing, um, I'll give that you know, to you for your edification. You can find out more at the websites. And a la Forrest Gump, that's all I have to say about that. Uh, but I do want to also put one rumor to bed, uh, lest there be any confusion about it, because <clears throat> I don't want to be uh, accused of, of, uh, of not being uh, sincere or straightforward. Um, I am not a natural ginger. Um, we're chalking this up to uh, sometimes things don't go exactly as you planned. And we'll leave it there. Um, but I know you know what it's like because some of you just came through a, a celebration where your turkey was done two hours before the rest of the food, or worse, an hour after. Things don't always go as we expect. Uh, if you have been a parent for any time, you've probably received the phone call that you dread with your child on the other end, uh, starting out with, Dad, I'm okay, but the car... Yeah. In fact, you might say human history itself is very little more than a series of events you didn't see coming. And all Detroit Lions fans in the rooms cross themselves and say amen. John Lennon, in his uh, song, Beautiful Boy, wrote the lyric, Life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans. Uh, he wrote better than he knew because the album... Uh, Double Fantasy, on which that song was, was released, was the last one he would produce before, before he was murdered. C.S. Lewis once argued about his, the atheism of his youth, that one of the things about Christianity that made him first suspect that it might in fact be true was just exactly this point. That Christianity has all the unpredictable qualities of real life. And what he meant by that was, is if it were a tidier religion, if everything fit hand in glove perfectly, if everything were perfectly explicable, if it were simple, straightforward and understandable in all things, that would actually be a piece of evidence that it was made up. Because real life is hard. 
real life, real things are unforgiving. They're complicated. And the Christian story, though it is many things, one thing it is not, is simple. It is a story about an eternal, ever-living God who suffers and dies. It is the story about a dead Messiah who lives again. It is a story about failed promises that come true after all. A story about flawed and imperfect people who are called holy and beloved. It is a story that seems to say both things. One, that the fate of the world and all its people rests upon whether or not we are faithful to carry out the mission we've been given. And at the same time, it says, number two, hey, by the way, don't concern yourself about it. Don't worry about all of this because God is sovereign and is working all things out on our behalf. This tension is baked into Christianity. There's no way around it. Why? Because at its foundation, Christianity is first a story about the restoration of all things. And that is inherently complicated. Specifically, God restoring lost things. But perhaps the most shocking, surprising, unexpected, real-life mimicking aspect of the story is this, that from the very beginning, God desired our participation in that story. That God perpetually uses human hands as the agency of foretelling the story. Let's be honest. Way back at the beginning, God can tend a garden. Needs no help. And yet, God commissions Adam and Eve to work. God can liberate captives with no assistance whatsoever. And yet God deputizes Moses to go stand before Pharaoh. God can raise the dead to life without anyone's help. And yet time after time after time we see him use the hands of Elijah and Elisha and the Messiah and the apostles to do it. And to the point today... God can save the world and everyone in it without the least amount of help. And yet here we are. A people commissioned and empowered so that, as the Apostle Peter wrote, we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his Marvelous light. The entire series that you've heard over the last, the last few weeks, this entire Zero series, has been about that invitation that the living God of history has extended to us 
to be part of the greatest and most unexpected message in history. A message that recalls the world and every person in it from their self-chosen death with the invitation to enter life. It's a message that claims beyond all hope that yes, indeed, broken things can be restored. Now understand, this is not a pipe dream. This is not a later addition to the Christian mission. It's not the invention of Augustine or Martin Luther or John Wesley. It was present from the very beginning in the mind of Jesus himself as he understood his mission from his heavenly Father. The Apostle Luke records the words of Jesus in chapter 24. Jesus tells them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name. Where? To all nations beginning in Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And the story rolls forward, and there at the beginning of Acts, then Luke tells us, as these things begin to come to be, Jesus himself says before he returns to uh, heaven, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then what? You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and where? To the ends of the earth. Now, this brief rehearsal of the mission of the story has been necessary lest we think that the Great Commission is merely an isolated task that Jesus uh, gave to his disciples so that they wouldn't be bored, so they would have something to do. Or worse, that it would simply become, that it was simply intended to be just one more pious activity that we add to our list of spiritual things that we do. Fasting and tithing and praying and doing good and Bible reading and things like that. No, 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 no. This task, the task of bringing the good news of redemption to a dying world is at the very center of the Christian story. When we do it, when we engage in this task, it is the moment that we look most like our Creator and Redeemer. We mirror God's desire for the salvation and restoration of individuals, families, communities, whole cultures. That is why in previous weeks in this series, as you've heard others talk about, you have heard about the gospel as spoken to our homes, our places of work, our neighborhoods, and today, as you've, already, as you've already been told, the whole world. For as the great Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper once said, as if he himself were writing a marketing slogan for the Zero Collective, there is not one square inch of creation or one event in all of human history of which God does not say, that is mine. And now this series concludes today with a reminder that we, we are the hands and the feet of this great vision. Well, what therefore does it mean for us to participate in this mission? What does it mean to bring the good news to the nations? 
Well, as I mentioned already in, the, in my introduction, things don't always go as expected. The church has always, throughout history, been zealous to carry out this mission, this command. That's to our credit. We should rejoice in that. But we've also made a lot of mistakes. We've had to learn hard lessons through history. The church hasn't always done it right or well, and we've had to kind of pick up the slack a bit. So what I'd like to do now for the better part of our time together is I would like to rehearse a bit of this history, some of the lessons that the church has had to learn, frontline and the larger church of Jesus Christ has had to learn through history as we go about bringing forth this mission. And the first lesson is simply that the mission itself is bigger than we could have expected. Jesus, again, in Matthew now writes in chapter 24 that this gospel of the kingdom is going to be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Ominous, that. Now, this has long been held to mean that Christ's second coming, Christ's return, will not take place until the whole world, every language, kindred, tribe, and nation has, has heard. It's a great motivator it has been for the church to be busy about the, the work of the gospel. But as great as that motive might be, it presumes, I think, that we know more than we really do about God's ultimate timetables. Uh, and I'll tell you what I mean. I'll give you an example. Around the year 200, the beginning of the third century, the Latin church father, Tertullian, spell it however you'd like, the church father, Tertullian, wrote, now this is about 150 years after Jesus, Right? He wrote, by the way, this verse has been fulfilled. The gospel's gone to the whole world. Everybody knows. Everybody's heard it. He's writing again 150 years after Jesus. So if this is a requirement for the return of Christ, guess what, friends? It was met 1,800 years ago. The problem is Tertullian himself may not have understood fully. And I don't mean simply because he'd never heard of the new world. But simply, he didn't recognize or realize that God's desire is not merely geographical. It's chronological as well. God is calling people not just from the whole of terrestrial geography, but from the whole of history as well. From all times as well as all places. So understand, there's no comfort or rest for us in Tertullian's observation. As if you could say, you know, oh well... Since Jesus' intention was fulfilled so long ago, we're off the hook. No, my friends, zero lost people does not mean just a witness to every nation, but a witness in every age to every nation. My generation, your generation, we are in the exact same boat as the apostles themselves. Our task is identical to theirs because the gospel must go to every nation, language, kindred, and tribe today, not just 1,800 years ago. But that brings us to a bit of a problem, another stumble that we have often made, a lesson that we have to continue to remind ourselves in our rush to go, is that, number two, you have to remember you cannot force or manipulate people into the kingdom. A reminder what Jesus said in, in Acts 1, you shall be what? Witnesses, mere witnesses 
our job is only to speak of what we have seen. That's how John started his first epistle. What we have seen and heard and touched and our hands have handled, that's what we are called to do, to be a mirror witness. It is not possible to argue, manipulate, or force people to accept this Jesus. Sadly, the church has had troubling moments in its history that stem from not understanding this point. You can talk about their legion. You can talk about how the Crusades partnered up with Islam to make the Middle Ages a, a great problem. You can talk about forced conversions of indigenous people or, or, or I, the Irish in, in, in turn, all kinds of stories. And, and it's easy to think about these moments in history and regret them and mourn them. But it's true in our day as well. We, just modern evangelicalism, we often make the mistake. It's a different mistake perhaps, but it's in the same vein. The mistake of thinking that being a witness means promising people things they want. Things like prosperity, affluence, or happiness. Come to Jesus and all your troubles will magically disappear. As if somehow Christianity was incompatible with suffering, destitution, and loss. You've been a Christian for any length of time, you know better. We have to understand that the very thing that Jesus first called his disciples to witness was what? A crucifixion. It is the Messiah who suffers on our behalf that is our first point of witness. And when we invite people to follow after this Jesus, we are inevitably inviting them into a life of difficulties and tensions. Jesus told us himself, in this world you shall have trouble, John 16. And our witness to the nations is not that in Jesus, therefore, we will not have trouble. Our witness to the nations is to give them the rest of that verse, to remind them of the rest of his statement. Yes, in this world you shall have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Do not think that your job or your obligation is to sell the kingdom to the world by making it more attractive than it really is. That ain't your job. Your job is to tell the horses where the water is. You can't make them drink. Someone should put together a, you know, a, a phrase for that that we can remember. But that's actually, when you think about it, this sort of potentially despairing moment that we don't have the power to do it in ourselves, that's actually a pretty hopeful statement because it means the third lesson to think about here is that success does not really ultimately rest on our shoulders. Same verse, Acts 1. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Don't misunderstand. Don't mishear this. Yes, responsibility does very much rest on our shoulders. We have been commissioned to go and speak, and we are culpable if we do not. True enough. But don't confuse our efforts with God's. Jesus said, who will build the church? I will build my church, and consequently, the very gate of hell shall have no power over it. Or as Paul says elsewhere, you know, some will plant some will water, but who gives the increase? God. We are instruments. No, better. We are partners, mere partners with God in this endeavor. 
Success does not rest on our shoulders. It rests upon God's promises and the Spirit's power. So friends, be comforted. Just be faithful. Let God worry about the results. But that brings us to a final and perhaps hardest lesson for us to really, really chew on before we begin to ask what it exactly means to us. Lesson sort of number four is to remember that our mission is offering to people not our cultural values, but our common Savior. The church is, it has to be, it has no choice but be an organism in tension. Because on the one hand, think about it this way. Travel anywhere in the world. Go into any church you want, any Christian church, any church where the name of Christ is proclaimed, and guess what? You're going to find they're all the same. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Go anywhere you want. Enter a Christian church. You are among family. Strange family, maybe. Different customs, different clothing, different food, different assumptions about the world, but family nonetheless. But there's the tension, because at the same time, every church is also radically different from every other church. Just as no two people, even identical twins, are not exactly alike, so no two churches are the same. I mean, you could see this. You don't have to go overseas to see this. You could drive 20 minutes down into Grand Rapids. I could introduce you to many dear African-American or Hispanic or Asian pastors, friends of mine, former students all, whose churches look and feel radically different than Frontline, right in our own city. And if that is true within our own area code, how much more so when you consider Christ's church in Ethiopia or Brazil or Taiwan? We have to respect and acknowledge that the gospel sent to the nations is not quite the same as making those churches look like ours. And I say this because the church has a history of struggling and sometimes confusing the gospel with its own cultural values. In fact, even to this day, I hear American Christians, I see it on my Facebook feed going by every day. We talk a lot at times, I see it, about things like exporting democracy or the free market, or individual rights, or gun rights, or medical rights, or, or, meta, uh, or feminism, or the values of the West, or name it what you want. I'm not here to comment on any of those. Whatever the virtues and liabilities of that conversation is, hey, go have it. God bless you as you go. I'm not here to talk about that. Why? Because those aren't the same as the gospel. Ask any career missionary, ask any Bible translator the difficulties of trying to sort out where an indigenous church ought to look like itself and still be faithful to Christ, or where are we merely importing the, the look and feel of the American church as if our goal was to convert people to our style of music or our order of service, our liturgy, or to our church structure, our polity, as if that were what the gospel was about. That's not our job. But I do admit it is difficult. It's difficult because, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but there really is no such thing as a model church. There's no blueprint that works for all contingencies, covers everything. The church is, here's your $64 word for the day. The church is incarnational. It's enfleshed. It wears clothing. 
It wears skin. The church is incarnational just like its savior. And when it becomes incarnate in any culture, it possesses by necessity the flavor, the texture, the feel, the smell of that culture. Why? Because that's where Christians are made and they bring it with them. Italians, Guatemalans, and Congolese do not cease to be Italian, uh, Guatemalan, or Congolese when they become Christians. More importantly, they do not, upon conversion, become Americans. And we have to continue to remind ourselves and each other of this thing that we all know. That our witness does not consist of our preferred cultural standards, but our common Savior, Jesus so here's the, the question. I mean, oh, well, what if we don't do it right? What if we don't? What if we, what, the church needs to know this. Church needs to, Well, calm. Calm yourself. Be at rest. The real question at stake here is, is this. Not do we trust ourselves to get it right, but do we trust that the Spirit is big enough, strong enough, faithful enough to sort out those differences, to give appropriate wisdom, to guide, even when we make mistakes. Do we trust the Spirit of God sufficiently to do that? That's really the question. I'll tell you an example from history. This is an extreme example. I myself to this day do not know what I think of this example. In the uh, 6th century, now we're talking 300 years. Take Tertullian and add, you know, 300 years. So we've stepped forward. Gregory the Great, so-called, he didn't call himself that. That's what we call him. Gregory the Great was the bishop in Rome in the uh, late 5th century. He lived in a, in a tumultuous time. Rome was sacked twice by Germanic tribes in his lifetime. He had to pick up a lot of pieces. But he is the bishop of Rome, which is extremely influential. Like Tertullian in the plus column, he, the gospel by his day had already been heard in all those little pagan European tribes to the north of Rome. As, even as far as Ireland. And when I say pagan here, I don't mean that as an insult. I mean it in the technical sense. Europe was filled mostly with nature-worshipping pantheists. But by Gregory's day, nearly all of Europe had been loosely converted to Christianity. And the key word in that sentence is loosely. Because what had actually happened... What was actually taking place in all those dingles and hollows around the European countryside was that they had sort of simply added Jesus to their pantheon of spirits. They worshipped, frankly, Jesus and everything else. And Gregory was torn. He didn't know what to do. He's the bishop of Rome. Do we force these people to put away their false gods? Do we impose Roman Catholicism down on them in a way that destroys the old ways and leaves only Jesus standing? Is that our job? And you know what he argued? Shockingly, surprising to me, he said no. This was his argument. Take it or leave it. If we take from them all of that in the name of Jesus, they will simply dump Jesus. Why? Because they're still too tightly wedded to their old religion. If we want them to slowly grow into Jesus followers, frankly, for now, we're going to have to let them have their idols too. Not because we desire it, not because it's right, 
Not because it's even necessarily good, but because the gospel must be continued to be heard there. And if we force them into the mold of Roman Christianity, they're simply going to walk away. I don't know what I think about that. That's hard. My brain says both things. Wow, that's deep, that's wise, that's thoughtful, that's considering it. And also at the same time, oh my head, what are you thinking? Did he do right or wrong? I don't know. It's complicated. This is the real complexity of the mission that Christ gave us. We have to navigate such questions at every turn and trust that the Spirit is big enough to make it right, even if we get it wrong. Now understand, Gregory's concern, Gregory's problem, his, his issue isn't just about the church in mysterious foreign lands, places that you can't pronounce very well or don't know how to find on a map. We face the exact same question here today. We have to recognize that just as all those other nations had their gods that compete with their attention, guess what? So do we. The values of our own culture and identity compete with Christ crucified and risen. So I ask us this morning, from what idols did Christ come to liberate us from? They may very well be some of our most deeply held assumptions about culture, about identity, about behavior. I'm not going to try to draw up a list of these American idols. Although I may have just given you an accidental push. I do invite you to spend some time this week reflecting, some time with God, asking yourself, what are the values of our culture that compete for our allegiance? Or even worse, masquerade as part of our faith. And what price do we pay for confusing them with the gospel? So all that brings us to the final question. How do we? Frontline, how do we how are we going to be an incarnational church? How do we participate in this mission? Now, I, I don't work at Frontline. I'm a place kicker. I'm on special teams. They bring me out when there's, you know, something to be done. And otherwise, I go sit on the bench. But I've been around long enough to know that a lot of time and thought has gone into Frontline's approach on trying to learn and live out these lessons from history. And I admit, we all admit, other churches may be incarnational in different ways. God bless them as they go. But at Frontline... The commitment has always been to go deep rather than wide. That we don't, we have made the choice not to send a bunch of American missionaries around the world to try to learn and fit into those cultures at great expense, and then we support them at 5% of their need, all of them. We've chosen not to do that. We tend to work more, as you've already seen today, we work with the church where it's at, where she is already present within those cultures. Why? Because we have learned that the gospel is most efficiently and effectively spread, not through the immense cost of American expatriatism, where we relocate Americans to those places as if the people who lived there were ignorant and powerless without our paternalistic assistance. Rather, Frontline's efforts grow out of a desire to equip the rest of the world to fulfill the Great Commission not a need for us to go and fulfill it on their behalf. I mean, keep in mind, Paul was Jewish. Unapologetically Jewish. He traveled around Asia Minor in Greece, starting Gentile churches. You know what he did not do? 
bring a train of Jewish believers with him and put them into positions of pastorate in these Gentile churches to make those churches look more Jewish. That's exactly what Paul did not do. If you go look at the, the list of Paul's pastors in the New Testament, guess what you discover? Pastor Timothy, Gentile. Pastor Titus in Crete, Gentile. Pastor Aristarchus in Colossae, Gentile. Pastor Gaius in Corinth, Gentile. Pastors Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus, Gentile. Paul left. Indigenous people in charge of those churches went away and then helped them by writing letters. That's why we have a New Testament. The letters. Now I say all of that and recognize there's a tension here too. I've already said Paul was Jewish. He was a career missionary. He went around and got support. So yes, it is true that there are those in our midst who will be called to uproot and make their home elsewhere for the sake of the gospel. Yes, and we should support them as well. But the lesson for all of us to remember here in this moment as we contemplate the gospel to the nations is to always be remembering that the rest of the world is not our project on which we practice the Great Commission. They do not exist so that we can do things to them. You know, like an Oedipal mother over her son. They are our brothers and our sisters who have the Spirit's empowerment to evangelize their own little corners of the world. What they need from us is not for us to do it for them, but to help and encourage out of our surplus and our love for them. This is why you will hear Frontline talking about things like UCRO sponsorship. To change a community, invest deeply within it. That's why when we invite you folks to go on missions trips other places to see, the focus is on, is on relationship building, not going and doing it for them. It's why we form partnerships with indigenous organizations and churches who are already well-placed to do the work. This is what we do. We partner with the nations because it's their job too. And honestly, they can do it better. You might understand our role in this if, again, you think about a football analogy. And, um, and I'm sorry to all the Ohio State fans if this analogy is now painful to you. I, I, we talked about lament, and I, we're going to create room for all the Ohio State Think about a football analogy. Our goal is not to rush out onto the field, take their positions, and run the play on their behalf because we think we, do it, but we can do it better. <laughs> oh, I hate this. Our goal is to be the cheerleaders on the sideline. Believe me, I don't want to wear the uniform. <laughs> but that's our job. We root for their success. And then on occasion, as needed... We play on a special team where and when they need and ask for it. Oh, by the way, Frontline, we have no place kicker. Do you have one you can spare for the season? Yes. Frontline's mission is clear. The question now for each one of us, members of the Frontline family, is what role each one of us are going to play. That's your question. What role are you going to play in this? For some of you, it will be when the time comes, when it rolls back towards us, to sponsor a child. 
in Ucro or to support Global Faith Network. For some of you, it will be to take one of these trips that are offered to go and learn and see with your own eyes and then come back and tell us what God is doing. For some of you, it will be through the ministry of prayer or financial support of those who are going. And for some of you, yes, it is true. It may be a calling for you to uproot yourself and go, like Paul, to play on a special team somewhere else in the world. But know this, and with this I'm done. Understand, our mission does not end until we can say of our time and our place, just as Tertullian and Gregory did of theirs, that zero people remain unchanged by Jesus. We hope this message encouraged you in seeing who God is and who you are in Him. If you want to take a next step, visit frontlinegr.com slash next. We look forward to connecting with you there, and we'll see you back here next week.